doing? I'm great. How are you? I'm good. I'm especially excited. I always say that I'm excited every episode, but this time I mean it. I know, right? (laughs) (laughs) What? You mean it every time. (laughs) I do mean it every time, but this time I mean it, mean it, because we got (laughs) a special guest. Yay. Yay. We need something to insert sound effect. Yeah, we need need some applause or something. (laughs) And she deserves it, too. This is our good special friend. We have known her for years. She actually is our classmate of sorts. Uh, We all went to the same school together in grad school. This is... Talisha Searcy. Hey, Talisha. Hello, hello, hello. <laughs> How you doing? <laughs> I'm doing well, thank you. I'm excited to be here. Oh, good. We're excited to have you. Now, for those of you who don't know, first of all, Talisha is a very good person, and that's reason enough for her to be here. Um, but Talisha is here because she's our friend, and she is a fan of a different world like all of us. Um, But Talisha is also very passionate about civic engagement. She has served as city council member in the city of Tacoma Park, Maryland since 2017. Uh, As Ward 6 city council member, Talisha has worked to advocate for residents and businesses alike on issues such as police reform, transportation, housing. Basically, Talisha is the bomb.com. She knows everything and she's well suited to talk about this particular episode. Um, We're going to get into episode 21 of A Different World. And this is the one where we have a visit from Jesse Jackson. Yay. Yes. This is the special politics episode. We are keeping hope alive. Keeping hope alive. So we got a politician in the house. Yes. And with that (laughs) said, Talisha. Just introduce yourself. Tell the people who you are. Yeah, I mean, well, Portia gave such an amazing intro. Um, so it's not very much more I can add to that. She's so humble. I, you know, but <laughs> my pa- <laughs> I do my part. Um, but my passion really is just really helping the community. Um, and I realize I'm a servant at heart. That's what I do. Um, and I've been doing it at the federal level um, since 2000. I'm almost 15 years working for the federal government. And more recently, in addition to the federal work, um, doing help in my community um, at the local level. So I, that is what I am passionate about. That is what gets, gets my blood going. Um, and I'm excited to have a chance to talk to you all today um, because I think this particular episode really hit on not only the the joys, but sometimes the pains of of running for office and being elected and being a leader. So yeah, no, I'm I'm excited to be here. Okay. Well we are excited again to have you and to get your perspective. So let's delve right into it. And classmates, before we get into our official discussion As always, we want to remind our listeners that we have structured this podcast to review each and every single episode of A Different World in chronological order. So pull out your blankets, your memories, your flasks, get the car, Bluetooth set up. You know, I hope we're all downloaded and ready to take this journey with us uh, down memory lane as we discuss A Different World Season 2, Episode 21 
entitled Citizen Wayne. So Portia, give us some background. Okay. So this episode actually aired on April 27th, 1989. Um, And this was actually a pretty big day internationally related to the Tiananmen Square protest in Beijing, China. So it's a lot that happened and and it's pretty complicated. So I'm just going to give a very brief synopsis. um, And I encourage all of you to learn a bit more. LaRonda, if I I miss something, please chime in. So basically, in the aftermath of the death of a political leader, uh, rapid economic development and social change, there was growing criticism of the communist government led by student activists. And then on April 26th, an editorial published in a newspaper of the political party in power branded the protest as anti-government to intimidate and discourage further activity. So then on the next day, on April 27th, Uh, Tens of thousands of students from all of the universities in Beijing uh, marched to Tiananmen Square, which was the largest protest in China in decades. Uh, These were mostly nonviolent demonstrations, and they continued until June 4th when the government escalated things and began using violent force. And then on June 5th, a lone man stood in front of a row of armored tanks in silent yet symbolic protest against the government. I don't know how much you may know about Tiananmen Square, but most people probably remember that iconic uh, video or photo of a man standing in front of the um, of of armored tanks. Um, So that's what that was in relation to. And in the end, the government went out. But these actions in 1987 made a huge impact on China standing internationally um, still to this day. So. That's what was significant about April 27th, 1989. Oh, wow. That is so incredible that, you know, we have this political activism by students and these significant events occurring on the same day that this episode aired. Right. And again, you know, talking about making um, making the show more relevant with, with Debbie Allen now at the helm, it, on, it only makes sense when you're talking about college students and, and, you know, you have these college students over in Tiananmen Square and they're all protesting about different things, but they're very politically engaged. Mm -hmm. And so uh, speaking of that, let's get into this summary. So the episode um, is summarized as follows. During Dwayne's campaign for student government president, he can't seem to get his peers to buy into his sound policy platform. However, his savvy campaign manager and friend, Ron, works to turn the tide by claiming that Dwayne has Jesse Jackson's endorsement. And that's a pretty big claim. (laughs) All right. So again, directing this episode and every episode in season two, we have Miss Debbie Allen. The writers for this episode are Daryl G. Nickens and Mike Scott. We've actually talked about them before because they wrote episode 14 Um, in season two called Breaking Up is Hard to Do. As we know, they were creative partners and wrote and produced on several TV sitcoms together, including Webster, 227, What's Happening Now. And then this is their second episode that they wrote for A Different World. In addition to the work that he did with Mike Scott, Daryl Nickens also wrote episodes of the famous Jed Jackson and the Parkers, and he wrote the screenplay to House Party 2, And he also was a writer on the Image Awards in 1987. Um, And unfortunately, he died of cancer in 2006. 
So that is uh, Daryl Nickens and his writing partner, creative partner, Mike Scott. Producing this episode and pretty much every episode this season, we have Marcy Carsey, Debbie Allen, Joanne Curley Kerner, Susan Fales, Nancy Haas, Thad Mumford, Margie Peters, and Tom Warner. Ailey, why don't you tell us who's on this episode? All right, so we have our cast of faves, Jasmine Guy, Don Lewis, Kadeem Hardison, Daryl M. Bell, Charnell Brown, Cree Summer, Mary Alice, Glenn Terman, and Lou Myers. Uh, So basically, the only one not in this episode is Sinbad, who plays Walter Oaks. This episode has some pretty dynamic and incredible guest appearances. The key guest here is the Reverend Jesse Jackson. So I won't get into a lot about Reverend Jackson right now because there's just so much that we can say, but we will talk more about Reverend Jackson's bio and his history and his work as we discuss the episode. But for now, I will just note based on his bio, the Reverend Jesse Lewis Jackson Sr. is founder and president of the Rainbow Push Coalition, and he is one of America's foremost civil rights, religious, and political figures. Over the past 40 years, um, he's definitely played a pivotal role in virtually every movement for empowerment, peace, civil rights, gender equality, and economic equality, and social justice. Um, He's so profound and so prominent that on August 9th, 2000, uh, President Bill Clinton awarded Reverend Jackson with the Presidential Medal of Freedom, uh, which is our nation's highest civilian honor. Um, Just some background, Reverend Jackson is a native of Greenville, South Carolina. He attended the University of Illinois on a football scholarship. However, he later transferred to North Carolina A&T. He began theological studies at Chicago Theological uh, Seminary. However, he deferred his work when he began working full-time in the civil rights movement with Dr. Martin Luther King, and he was ordained um, as a full reverend by the Reverend Clay Evans and later received his Master of Divinity degree from Chicago Theological Seminary in 2000. The Reverend Jesse Jackson has run for president in the United States, but we'll talk about that a little more when we get into his appearance in the episode. Also in this episode, we have a guest appearance by Candy Alexander. Now, when you see the episode and when Ms. Alexander pops up, you probably automatically think this is a familiar face. Um, She is familiar. We've seen her all over television throughout the decades. She is a dancer, choreographer, and actress. That I did not know. I knew she was an actress, but I wasn't familiar with her as a dancer. What we may recognize her from, or what you may recognize her from most recently, is her starring role as Dr. Alex Woods in the CBS series CSI Miami. She also starred as LaDonna Baptiste Williams in the HBO drama Treme. She's also been in the ABC drama Scandal as Maya Lewis, Olivia Pope's mother, for which she did receive a Primetime Emmy Award nomination. 
Miss Alexander began her professional career in entertainment as a dancer and choreographer and actress. Notably, she was a choreographer for Whitney Houston's World Tours from 1988 and 1992. You may also recognize her from what movie? What's Love Got to Do With It? She was an Ikeette. Other movie ah. appearances. Yep, yep, she's Ike. So other movie appearances include Sugar Hill, Poetic Justice, um, Something About Mary. She also has a few Broadway credits, including Chicago and Bob Fosse's Dancing and Dreamgirls. So All right. She's done a little, little bit of everything. She's done a little bit of everything. Very accomplished um, history as an entertainer and performer. All right. So we also have Eartha Robinson uh, playing Teresa's friend. And we actually saw her earlier on episode seven in season two. That was the step show episode. She was one of the Libby Hall steppers. Actually, she was the step captain. She was the one that, you know, did the quick step and then snapped and said, y'all can have that one. Right. That was her. That was the one that had that had the girls shook. Yeah. So yes. as we already talked about, she has a long career in stage, television, film, and particularly dance. And she also has a long working history with Debbie Allen on a number of projects. So it's really no wonder that she is back again. And according to IMDb, we will see her again in season four. Also, we have David Lewis, according to IMDb. David P. Lewis only has a few TV and film credits to his name, but apparently he's been doing a lot of local theater and working as an acting teacher in Long Beach, California. And then we got this information from his social media accounts. All right. So Riff Hutton also plays um, a security guard in this episode. He is a San Antonio, Texas native, and he's possibly he's probably best known for his recurring role as Dr. Ron Welch on Doogie Howser, which I'm sure all of y'all remember um, uh, with Neil Patrick Harris back in 1990 or back in the early 90s. Um, He also had a role on the series JAG as well as notable appearances on The Jeffersons, Night Court, L.A. Law, Married with Children, the list goes on and on. Um, He also has a a pretty solid career as a voice actor with roles in animated films, including The Princess and the Frog and Spider-Man Into the Universe. And he can now be seen as a regular cast member on General Hospital. And last, but definitely not least, we have an appearance by the NBM Party, a.k.a. Jackson Action Rappers. Now, when we looked this group up, we could not find a lot of very specific information about them, but we were able to infer that this was a group that performed during Jesse Jackson's campaigns. But we couldn't, unfortunately, we couldn't find much more than that. So if we have listeners who know more about the Jesse Jackson action rappers slash NBM party, please let us know. We'd like to hear more. And now it's time to get into this episode of A Different World. So the show opens with Dwayne and his opponent for student body president, Miss Teresa or Teresa Stone. They're both making campaign stump speeches and debating in the pits. Dwayne has a very sound campaign platform. He's there arguing for the need to increase student fees 
to sustain student activity. And he proposes charging $1 as student dances to raise funds for scholarships. Teresa, however, counters with a catchy sound bite, noting that if students elect Dwayne Wang, they will have to pay to party. As the students begin loudly chanting, free party, free party, Mr. Gaines intervenes to quell the noise. As the students disperse, Ron remarks how he appreciates Dwayne's sound policy while seeking refuge from having to pay fees. Next, Colonel Taylor walks into the pit and asks Dwayne to come to his house to let the carpet cleaners in the following day since he won't be at home. Now, let's get into it. First thing I thought about in watching this particular episode, or rather in this scene, uh, was my memories of campus campaign events. Portia or uh, Talisha, did either of you ever run for office when you were in high school or college? So I did. I ran for office in high school. She's just been a I know, the whole right? Time. <laughs> it's been my blood. It's been in my blood. <laughs> um, and it's crazy. Um, but watching this episode um, reminded me of how elections are not that different from high school to college to even local and federal levels. Like people like free stuff. I remember in high school making sure that we had candy <laughs> to give out along with my vote for me form. Like, um, so that episode reminded me a lot of that. I mean, it's the same way even with my local campaign, like you're, you're trying to get buttons and stickers and all of these things, um, because at the end of the day, you want people to remember you um, and you want people to like you. And usually most people aren't going to like paying money. True. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and, you know, and, and that's something, you know, that's that's true at, at all levels. People vote for who they like and who they can relate to. And you wish that it was more about the issues, but the reality of it is it, it may be very individual in terms of issue specific reasons why people may vote. Um, but more often than not, they vote for the person they like. That is true. Um, politics is very personality driven. I remember being on campus at Tougaloo and the campaign season was a very great time because as the season would approach, we would all be thinking about all, again, the free stuff that the candidates would do. And essentially the candidate who threw the best party, who had the best free food (laughs) would often end up on top. Mm -hmm. I remember one uh, young lady, she actually had a Chick-fil-A kiosk. Oh, that'll do it. She had a. She got my vote. She had a Chick Fil A kiosk at one of her events, so that was pretty cool. Especially if it was all the sauces you want, all the sauces you want. (laughs) But you know, Talisha, you can appreciate this. This was before Chick Fil A was mainstream, though. When Chick Fil A was good, when it was only in the South. Oh yeah, yeah. You know, I Mm -hmm. think the quality Mm -hmm. has suffered since they've expanded. But you know, that's another conversation for another day. For another day. What Mm -hmm. about you, Portia? You have any memories of (laughs) of campus campaigns? Uh uh. (laughs) I never ran for nothing. mm -mm. It's too much. It's it's too uh, nerve wracking. 
You got to make speeches. You got to be in front of people. You got to try to convince people that you're right and uh, and the other person is wrong or, you know, or at least just that you're right. Maybe not focusing on, on what the other person is doing, but it's a lot and it's a lot of responsibility because you make all these claims and promises and then you, you kind of have to hold up your end of the bargain. Um, at least if you have a conscience, because there's a lot of folks that'll go out and say stuff and it'll be like, hey, I'm here now. I don't know what you're talking about. So <laughs> I, uh, yeah, I I did other things on campus, but I did not get into the political scene. I got you. Talisha, did anything else stand out for you in this first segment? Um, You know, I think one of the things that that really kind of resonated with me was poor Dwayne was trying to rationalize why we need why the students needed to pay a little bit more money and mm-hmm. the great things that can happen because of it and that really resonated with me because sometimes people don't understand money and finance <laughs> within like within like a city or a state or fed, they don't know how that works mm-hmm. and the fact of the matter is they don't care. They, don't. <laughs> they just don't want to pay more money. And so I think that that was one of the things that really stood out for me. I'm like, oh, man, Dwayne, you, you're starting out talking about paying more money and you're going to lose. <laughs> <laughs> That's something you work in. Like after you start talking about the stuff that people want, then you work in how you're going to pay for it. True. But, <laughs> So that was something that did stand out for me, but it, it was it was a, a really great opening and reminded me a lot of being on the quad at Georgia State. Yes, it definitely reminded me uh, of being at Tougaloo. What about you, Portia? What else did I for you in this scene or what resonated with you from this opening scene? Well, you know, again, um, we we talked about it this whole time um how season 2 is such a step up from season 1 um and there it's almost like they revisit some of these topics that were kind of either talked about directly or just um glanced at in season 1 so if you remember uh, episode 17 in season 1 called Mr. Hellman that was the one where Dwayne ran for you know Miss Hellman um against Whitley Oh, yeah. Yeah. Denise actually put him up to it um, mm-hmm. because she felt like it shouldn't just be a woman running for Miss Hellman. Men can run, too. And so she was going to be his campaign manager. So it was a, a little bit of a different context. But Dwayne was still having to convince his classmates to vote for him. Um, and now here he is uh, running again, but this time for president of student government. You know, and and again, we've seen this before with the difference between season one homecoming where they're trying to steal that uh, mascot head, (laughs) you know, versus season two homecoming where they're stepping and, you know, doing stuff that you're more likely to see on the uh, on an HBCU campus. You know, the difference between an Eggby episode and Kim's real pregnancy scare. So, you know, it's it's just really cool that they are grounding season two episodes in um in more of a reality that college students would would be a part of but but more specifically hbcu students mm-hmm. so that stood out to me but visually i would say a lot of the greek life stood out to me too did you notice how many um <laughs> sorority and fraternity t-shirts you saw in there yeah they had a lot they had a lot okay and then 
also, I do have to bring up, you know, Mr. Gaines with his ornery self. Uh, I love Mr. Gaines. <laughs> he gives me life as well. <laughs> Mr. Gaines is funny to me. And he basically told these children to get out, shut up, get out of my face. More specifically, he said, quote, if you want to act like crazy people, go on TV with that Morton Downey Jr. Now, do y'all remember Morton Downey Jr.? No clue who that is. I even, I missed the reference. Okay. When he said that, I said, oh yeah, we in 1989 for sure. So Morton Downey Jr., for those who don't remember, he was a talk show host and widely credited with introducing trash TV. Uh, so the Morton Downey Jr. show debuted in 1987, went into national syndication in 88 and was canceled in 89. It was, it was short, but powerful. Um, and his show was... <laughs> You don't remember it? I don't think that got to our market. Was that in your market in Georgia, in Georgia, Talisha? I don't remember it. That must have Girl. been. A, maybe that was like an East Coast market thing. That never. I don't think it made it to market in Mississippi. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, it went into national syndication, but national syndication could be, you know, multiple cities, but not every city. Right. It definitely got to Syracuse. I remember seeing him and hearing about him. Um, and I remember watching some of his, not watching the entire thing because I didn't quite understand, but what I remember and what he is known for is have is creating confrontations between guests that sometimes ended with physical fights. Like there were episodes um, when I was doing some research, girl, he went to the Apollo Theater and hosted an episode between white supremacists and black folks. <laughs> And they were standing on platforms and just yelling at each other. Like, it was crazy. He had an episode with Al Sharpton. Um, oh. And and I think he was confronting some white supremacists. They got into a physical fight. So it was a mess. I thought Jerry Springer pioneered that, clearly. No, no. <laughs> he Jerry Springer is his son. Girl, Geraldo Rivera, Richard Bay, Jerry Springer, Steve Wilkos, Tucker Carlson, Rush Limbaugh. All these folks owe a debt of gratitude to Morton Downey Jr. because he he was the one that started it all. All this confrontation on television you see now, okay. that's him. Well, thank you for that television history, girl. I had no idea. I know, because I had no idea. I did not know. <laughs> so that's what Mr. Gaines meant. You get out of here, go on to that Morton Downey Jr. where you belong. <laughs> girl, okay. Got it. Got it. All right. Well, let's jump into the next scene. Next, Kim, Jaleesa, and Whitley walk in the pit having a conversation about potential gifts to get Freddie for her 18th birthday. Yay, Freddie's turning 18. Shortly after they decide that a Ziggy Marley tape is out of the question and Whitley casts her usual Freddie shade, Freddie actually walks into the pit and she reveals that she thinks she knows who's coming to be the next assembly speaker. And she also knows this information from snooping around documents with a particular last name during her work-study assignment. She then excitedly proposes that it's the Jacksons that will be coming to campus to have a reunion concert during her birthday weekend, no less. Ron overhears the conversation and postulates that the guest must be LaToya Jackson because she is the most important Jackson. So, <laughs> there's a lot. It's a lot. A lot happened in a little amount of time. But the first thing that occurred to me or that I thought about in this scene was the cassette tape 
or a CD. And I remember times when those were good birthday gifts. So much so, Talisha, I remember the time I had a birthday when we were in grad school together. And the gift that you gave me was um, a gospel CD. I forgot who it was, but, <laughs> but I still got it. I still got it. <laughs> video of a, like a little presentation on a CD. I don't know how I would play that, but I still have it. Oh. And my photo album, I still have it. Oh yeah. So, you know, just to know classmates, we all attended the same church. So I think when Talisha parted, that was a church that did the CD, right? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. The church uh, uh. gave her like a CD. It was like a photo and video montage of memories of Talisha. Yay. Oh. But yeah, I don't know how I'm play it, how I would play it today because I have nothing in my house that can play a CD. You know what? No, I do have a DVD player. I still have a DVD player. It's dusty, but I have one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, uh, but you know, now, well, for for me now, when I go to parties, my gift of choice is a bottle of wine or liquor. Yeah, that's what I like to give, yeah. and that's what I like to receive. You can't go wrong. You can never go wrong with alcohol. So, of course, this one was full of zesty one-liners by my girl, Whitley. Girl, zesty. Zesty capital letters. I was like, wait a minute. What's happening? Why do we have so much say for the Jacksons? So one line that Willie throws out there that I love is she says, Tito has, Tito, because you know how she talks, Tito <laughs> has no business getting back on that stage. Y'all, why is Tito always the one to get the jokes? I don't know why people treat Tito that way. I mean, he ain't done nothing to nobody. <laughs> <laughs> but he is always the one that people are cracking jokes about. I don't know. I don't understand that he's he was he knew his steps he was in the back he let michael shine i mean he did his part i don't, I don't understand his guitar. you know he did his part he did his part do y'all remember that reality show about the jacksons did you all ever watch that i sure did this was like when they were older this was this was in the uh i feels like the immediate aftermath of michael jackson's death Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It was close. Maybe, maybe a year later or something. I don't know. And I think the premise was that they were going to reunite and go on tour and stuff like that. But yeah, they were out here and, and I just remember thinking they're all right. You know, these are, these are grown black men. I don't understand why Tito gets all the, uh, you know, so much, well, vitriol is a bit strong, but you know why he gets the jokes, except for maybe people just like saying the name Tito. Tito. Yeah, I, I think <laughs> it's the name. But one thing that I remember from the reality show, and it was funny, Tito was like the realest person on there. Like he was yeah. just, he, mm-hmm. he was so regular, so real. He like reminded me of one of my uncles. And I think this was when Jermaine had the painted hair at this point, didn't he? Girl. <laughs> yeah, he had an interesting hairstyle. Yeah. And 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 I think still does. He he found a style that he felt worked for him 
and has stuck with that. Okay, so another one-liner that Willie inserts, and this was this one-liner is in reference to Latoya Jackson. <laughs> Willie says she's more plastic than a Tonka truck, Ooh. and then. <laughs> I chuckled at that one. That one was funny. And Ron also follows that with Latoya Jackson is an expert on reptile on reptiles. What are you all's recollections of Latoya Jackson circa nineteen eighty nine or around that time? Was she in the media a lot for having plastic yes. surgery? Was she criticized? Yes, she was. So yeah, this was when and actually this is my earliest recollection of Latoya Jackson. I understand that she, um, you know, did a lot of stuff with her family back in the seventies. I think they had a variety show and she had her own little solo career and stuff. But I remember her going on these talk shows. She was married at one point that later she, she said it was an abusive marriage and, and he kind of brainwashed her, but she was out here uh, and she, did the cover of Playboy. I think I want to say it was Mm -hmm. it was by this time, but I just remember seeing her, you know, in real revealing clothes with with a boa constrictor, you know, holding a boa constrictor and stuff. So that's where Ron's uh, quip about her being an expert on reptiles comes in. Um, Yeah. And I'm sure she had had a little surgery done by then as well, which is why Whitley says she's more plastic than Tonka truck. But yeah, that that's my earliest recollection is that Latoya was out here doing it all. And then come to find out later on, she said, I didn't want to do any of that. I was forced into it. So what? it's a little sad. See, Talisha, I knew Portia will remember. I had some recollection about Latoya Jackson and the plastic surgery. I remember as, even as a kid thinking like, wow, her nose is really, really thin. Um but yeah, and the snake seemed vaguely familiar. But now that you said that, Portia, you definitely jogged my memory back. She was on the talk show circuit very heavy. And, you know, to be fair with the black surgeon, she's not the only Jackson. <laughs> she was, and that's what I was trying to remember. Was she before or after Michael? Because I'm sure they overlap. <laughs> I just feel like when she came on the scene, um, Michael's face was evolving and <laughs> did she say evolving? <laughs> yeah. it, was, it was it was moving forward and then she came on the scene and her face was already different like it was gone so I think that like it was around that time where they were making a change and they were making a change to their faces going in a similar direction. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what made LaToya also, because keep in mind, you know, Janet was doing her control thing. Yep. And LaToya had to be different. So this was a way, I think, for her to be a little different. She was doing the plastic surgery. Her face was evolving along with her brother. And then she was on Playboy. Yep. Yeah. I mean, pretty much. <laughs> pretty much. But you know, shout out again to a different world for just the the relevancy and you know inserting those pop culture, popular culture references in the scene. I have, and black popular culture at that. Uh, yeah, because you know, part of me cringed a little bit because I was like, "Woo, they going hard on the Jacksons." 
don't no, know if that would happen though. today, but at the same time, yeah, they, they were showing what Black folks was talking about. If you went to a typical HBCU at that time, I'm sure they had a conversation about, you know, their opinions on the Jacksons. What's Latoya doing today? What's going on with Tito? Where's Michael? Seriously, and I remember, you know, hearing or overhearing adult conversations talking about Latoya's face <laughs> and, you know, the plastic and the Playboy and all of that good stuff. And, you know, people were seeing them as a little off. But nonetheless, let's just move on. In the next scene, Kim jovially walks into Gilbert Hall, excited to tell Jaleesa and Whitley about the perfect gift that she has found for Freddie. It's a book about Zora Neale Hurston. Unfortunately, Freddie comes in right behind Kim, indicating that she just purchased the same book. She's like, oh, girl, we should have a book club discussion. This is great. <laughs> Next, Ron and Dwayne enter Gilbert Hall with campaign flyers in hand. And Ron is trying to convince Dwayne that he needs to trade in running with substance to running with style. Dwayne, however, is not convinced, and Ron further notes that at this point, even he is ready to cast his vote for Teresa, the enemy, honey. <laughs> so, you know, this is a really short scene, but there's so much you can, or, you know, so many points we can talk about from it. One of the first things that I thought about, of course, um, are the similarities in the political landscape that we are in today and i mentioned mentioned it earlier but this policy versus personality debate um or competition and which one we think seems to win the most i know you talked about it in our in our discussion of the first segment so let me ask you this in your campaign experiences how have you been able to delineate between the two or how do you successfully kind of marry the two or merge the two policy and personality because you have a great personality right so I definitely see how you know why people <laughs> want to vote for you but what what do you do to convince the people of the policies or win them over on the policies that you are promoting I think the biggest thing is to understand what your constituency wants right um you know there's multiple methods to get people to um, what they want. Um, and so that's the thing, like understanding your constituency. I've actually had uh, one of one of my residents say, you know what, I voted for you because I trust you. And I know that you know what we in our community needs and what we want. So I'm checking out in the budget debate because I'm trusting that you are not going to raise our taxes. <laughs> But you are still going to figure out how to finance what we need over here, right? Um, and so I think that that's, that's the, the big kind of philosophical juggling that any um, elected official has to do. It is how do you know your constituency? How do you understand their needs? And then how can you effectively communicate what has to be done in order to get them what they need? And sometimes getting people what they need is not the same necessarily as getting them what they want. Those are two different things. Um, but being able to clearly communicate the why and why there is a need for a sacrifice mm -hmm. and what that sacrifice will gain them in the end is really critical. 
So I, like I said earlier, Dwayne started out by saying, you know what? We need money for scholarships. We need money for all these great things. So we're going to just, you know, we need to charge people to party. And it's like, wait a minute, you got all these people here because they want to party, right? So right. You, you, you can't just start off with, hey, we're going to charge you to party. It's going to be, don't you want to give out scholarships? Don't you feel we need to do more? Okay, we're going to start by taking donations at parties. Mm. And then from there, as people are giving more and more, it's like, oh, well, you know what? You've already been given X, Y, Z amount of money. Don't you all feel that we can now start just making it a standard that everybody just gives? Because you're giving anyway. So it's True. it's things like that that you kind of have to walk people through, mm-hmm. um, which is it's it's an art, not a science. Gotcha. <laughs> it is an art. It is an art. That makes sense. And speaking of it being an art and um, not a science, and I probably should have led with this question first, but let me backtrack a second and ask, what motivated you to run for office? Like, what was the what was the spark? What was the motivation? What was your influence? Um, I was doing um, like little neighborhood. I was neighborhood association president, right? Because I was like, okay, I'm in this new community and, you know, we got some things we need to fix and I'm willing to roll up my sleeves to help. Okay. So I'm going to plan some block parties, get some signs up, you know, just bring us together as a community on the weekends, that kind of thing. And um, it was going very well. And the current, uh, or at the time, the um, uh, council member for the area was retiring. And he said, Talisha, would you be interested in being the next council person? I was like, "Um, no, I'm doing block parties and I'm good with that. Um, And I waited. I waited to see if other people would step up and and would, would do it. And we were maybe like six months away from election. We had gotten down to about four months, uh, six months when he first asked, about four months Mm -hmm. um, when I realized no one else had stepped up. And I was like, okay, I can't have us in a situation where we, my community means too much to me for me to allow um, ourselves to be led by someone by default. Mm -hmm. Um, So, so that's why I I decided to run. I, I didn't want there to be a case where just anyone who raised their hands, who maybe didn't care as much about the community Mm -hmm. or wasn't willing to do the work, um, became our elected official by default. Got you. Oh, wow. That is so incredible. So like this, this, this was made for you. (laughs) (laughs) This was definitely designed for you. That's so awesome. Portia, in um, thinking about what Dwayne is experiencing and um, even, you know, his friend starting to give up. Do, do you have any thoughts on that or do you see any similarities to the political landscape that we are living in now? Uh, yeah, you know, we know who Ron is. Ron is, is Ron and Ron's always going to look at whatever's shiny. Um, and Theresa's um, how you pronounce it? Theresa? Theresa, yeah. Theresa's campaign, uh, you know, is really speaking Ron's language. Um, and of course, Dwayne is like, you know, but these issues is, is the substance. But Ron is right. You know, you do have to, you do have to um, make sure that you are relevant 
to to what the people want and try to figure out how to how to get your um you know how how to marry the two or you know step aside i don't know maybe you're not the right one maybe this is not your time right now and it hurts when your friend and i guess campaign manager is telling you i'm ready to cast my vote for somebody else so yeah i get it and we definitely see that in the political landscape i'm thinking about 2016 yep <laughs> I mean, yep when we saw one person that was about you know let's talk about these issues and let's talk about these policies and you had somebody else had a very catchy slogan and you know knew how to talk to people whether you liked what he was saying or not he knew how to get the attention Donald right. Trump was a celebrity first and foremost and he you know and there's a skill set that's attached to that that apparently was effective so it's hard. It's hard, especially when when you care about certain issues and you feel like those issues aren't getting enough attention or that people don't don't care enough about that. They care more about um, whether or not they like somebody or whether or not they think someone's cool. Right. Um, so, yeah, it, it's a hard one, but it's a reality, though. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it does a lot. And to Talisha's point, you know, she remarked that one of her, some of her constituency said, you know what, I trust you. <laughs> and mm-hmm. trust came from her personality, how approachable she appeared and how approachable she was and how she talked to people. So, you know, definitely have to win people over with your personality before they trust you and your policy making. So people vote for who they like. And, and I, it was a very, even something as, you know, the city of Tacoma Park has 17,000 people. It's not not a large city by any means, just outside of the D.C. area. Very progressive neighborhood. But the same is true. People vote for who they like. And it is a lot of kissing babies and going in people's houses pre-pandemic and having coffee with them and going to neighborhood events and talking to Girl Scouts. It is a lot of personal connections with people that get you elected. Yeah, I mean, you know, I I I cited 20 uh sorry, 2016 presidential election um between uh Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, but I could have said the same thing about 08 and 2012 when it was Obama versus McCain or Obama versus Romney. Um Obama in both um in both uh, election cycles was the one that had the most personality, in my opinion. Yeah. You know, there were a lot of people that voted for Obama because they liked him. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. and and you know, you could debate the the issues if you want, but he was the one that everybody was saying was cool. Girl, people like that hope. <laughs> people like that yeah. hope and change. But not to belabor that point, and we'll you know we'll keep inserting and talking about politics as we discuss this episode. But let's get into the next scene. So next we see Dwayne in Colonel Taylor's home playing around with Colonel Taylor's sword collection, even though he was specifically instructed not to touch anything. Remember Dwayne's remarks about the sword collection when he was in Colonel Taylor's house talking about his relationship with Suzanne? Mm-hmm. <laughs> then the doorbell rings and Dwayne opens the door to two very dapper, tall brown drinks of water, honey. <laughs> you know, they was fine for 1989. 
<laughs> Though their posture and radio suggest that the gentlemen are some type of security detail, Dwayne mistakes them for the carpet cleaners. Then in walks the Reverend Jesse Jackson. We get additional comic relief as Dwayne thinks that the Reverend Jesse Jackson is also a carpet cleaner who happens to look just like Reverend Jesse Jackson, founder of Operation Push. It's not until Colonel Taylor walks in and greets his old friend that Dwayne realizes he's actually in the presence of greatness. All right, so let's just start with the most important part of this scene, and dare I say, the episode. Why is Dwayne, why is the audience, why are we excited? Like, wow! You know, the the, um, <laughs> the live studio audience, did y'all peep that? They like was going crazy when Jesse Jackson walks into the room. Why is Jesse Jackson so important? So I know we talked about his bio um, in the beginning a little bit, but definitely want I definitely want to get into a little deeper dive of who Jesse Jackson was to us or or into a different world and, and to that studio audience at this time in 1989 what are your memories of the Reverend Jesse Jackson in the late 80s you know I could I could say for me um you know, kind of thinking and reflecting back on, on that era of history, you know, when the Black community had so, we had very little power, very few um, opportunities for upward mobility, and Jesse Jackson ran for president. Like, that is, it's, it's such a huge thing. In addition to all of the civil rights work that he's done and all of the work that he's humanitarian work and all of the work that he's done through his organization for me growing up and as an 80s kid you know it was people like jesse jackson andrew young like those those reverends those preachers turned politicians who really were the voice of the black community and really had figured out you know, following the footsteps of Dr. King, how to try to navigate the the political landscape, which is something that we as Black people were not able to do um, to, to get to those higher echelons or at least take a shot at getting at those higher echelons to really make change for, for our community. So for us, they were celebrities. They were celebrities. They were our pastors. They um, Jesse Jackson was our pastor. He was our elected official, <laughs> uh, even though he, he, he didn't necessarily um, uh, win the presidency. He was for us. And he, he did so much in the community um, that he was he was a celebrity for us. He was our Barack before there was an, ever an opportunity to even truly realize the vision or even foresee the opportunity of having a black president. Um, so for me, that's, that's how I, I, you know, growing up as an eighties kid saw, um, Jesse Jackson, um, along with a, no- a number of other black leaders during that time. So yeah, Talisha, and just to, um, you know, emphasize your point, you mentioned or reminded us again of Reverend Jackson's work and activism in the civil rights movement, you know, keep in mind, it wasn't until, the mid-60s that the civil rights legislation was passed, the Voting Rights Act was passed, 
So really, when this episode of A Different World aired, Black people hadn't even been voting for a solid 30 years. Right. Right. At this point. And so, you know, to have this icon who had worked, who had worked for and alongside, you know, these iconic figures such as Andrea, et cetera, to give us the right to, you know, to, you know, that worked so hard and so diligently for us to have the right to vote. This thing was still fresh. And it's, it's really, as we're having this discussion, it's really just dawning on me the relatively short length of time that Black people were actually voting. And here we have a gentleman that came as close as any Black man would come, you know, at that particular point. That was like super exciting. It's no wonder Jesse Jackson was perceived, you know, as as so iconic even then. And I know Portia, in one of our earlier episodes, as we were laying the foundation for the transition, you know, in from season one to season two of A Different World, you provided some really good background information about Jesse Jackson and his campaign runs as we were giving, you know, some time context about what was happening in the 80s. Can you just take us through some of those points again to just really emphasize and remind our listeners and as well as ourselves how pivotal Jesse Jackson was in the in the 80s and and what happened with his uh, campaign for presidency? Yeah, so, you know, agree to everything y'all just said um <laughs> this was he 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 really you cannot overstate the importance of jesse jackson to the black community especially at this particular time so if you remember jesse jackson ran for president not once but twice um so he first ran um in 1984 with his famous slogan run jesse run um and he actually became the second black candidate the first was Shirley Chisholm who ran in 1972 we must always remember that yep. um but he was the second black candidate to mount a nationwide campaign for president um but he is considered to be the first to be a serious contender mm-hmm. um and he became the first black candidate to win any major party state primary or caucus again to to your point Ely Black people had only been involved in the political process as as far as voting for 20 years, maybe, um, at that time. So this is a a huge deal for a Black person to win a primary. Um, Ultimately, he won approximately 20% of the national primary vote and placed a distant third behind Walter Mondale and Gary Hart uh, for the Democratic nomination. Walter Mondale won the the nomination and then um, uh, Ronald Reagan won the presidency. And then he threw his hat in the ring again in 1988, this time with the slogan, Keep Hope Alive. Um, And this campaign was much more successful than his 84 campaign. He probably laid a lot of groundwork in 84. Um, And as a result, he won 13 primaries or caucuses. Again, very huge. Um, Ultimately, he won nearly 30% of the primary vote and placed second behind Michael Dukakis, Um, who received the Democratic nomination. Now, he expected, or, you know, they say that he was expected to become the the vice president, um, you know, running mate for Dukakis, but Dukakis chose Lloyd Benston instead. Uh, So that was a bit of a disappointment for a lot of people. Um, And then he ended up delivering his famous Keep Hope Alive speech at the Democratic National Convention. But, you know, when you think about it, again, it's a huge deal 
that this black person who has such a strong tie to the civil rights movement and to voting rights um, and was able to build up a, a coalition in, you know, 20, 25 years um, of, of black people being actively involved in the political process like this, it's, it's a huge accomplishment. So to get that close, uh, like Talisha said, he may not be president, but he's, he's our president a right. little bit. He was our president for a long time. And I'm so glad you reminded us of the Keep Hope Alive slogan because that phrase is so enduring. I remember using that well beyond <laughs> mm-hmm. his his campaign. And um, also, you know, again, just as we're talking, I'm thinking about the Reverend Jesse Jackson and Barack Obama. Jesse Jackson ran on hope and so did Barack Obama. Right. Right. There's a lot of parallels. Yeah. <laughs> so many parallels. Yeah. And, you know, they both have the Chicago connection. It's just, it's, it's just, for lack of better words, it's incredible. It is. Yeah. And, you know, just the significance of Jesse Jackson being on a different world at that time. Um, you know, again, we're talking about the second season of this show. And, you know, I'm, I watched it and, it wasn't until this this uh, uh, most recent time to prepare for this episode. I was like, wait a minute. He could have been on the Cosby show. Why wasn't he on the Cosby show? That that seems like that would have been the more um, obvious choice in some ways because it, it was the number one show in America. He would have reached a much bigger audience. Um, so I don't know. What, why do you think he appeared or what was the significance of him appearing on a different world instead of the Cosby show. Cause I'm sure that was a conversation behind the scenes, you know? Well, according to our earlier discussions of the Cosby show and the difference, you know, when juxtaposing the Cosby show in a different world, the Cosby show, you know, it was pretty clear that they wanted to stay away from politics, if you will. And a lot of current events and issues. Whereas I think just the crux and the nature of Debbie Allen and this new team was to be very, very relevant in the time that we were in. Yeah. I mean, I think you're right. You know, again, doing some background research for this episode, I found out that Bill Cosby actually publicly endorsed Jesse Jackson's campaign in 1988 Mm -hmm. uh, with the commercial uh, if you if you go on C-SPAN and type in Bill Cosby and Jesse Jackson, you will see a 1988 commercial um, of Bill Cosby from the set of The Cosby Show encouraging people to vote for Jesse Jackson. Um, but to your point, you know, maybe maybe the decision was made that, you know, there's a difference between Bill Cosby, the person and you know, the Cosby show, the Cosby show does not get into politics. Bill Cosby might, um, but the Cosby show doesn't, but we also have a different world and that gets into politics. So. Yeah. I also, and I know we haven't made it to this scene just yet, but you know, it, it did also feel like there was a theme of, and Portia, you kind of alluded to what was happening in the world at the time of this episode, but it, it seemed as if there was um, an underlying charge of mobilizing um, Black youth to vote. 
And that was kind of like this underlying theme that trickled into um, various scenes throughout the show. And if you're thinking about where to have someone like Jesse Jackson and where it could potentially be um, a, an effective vehicle for communicating to college age black youth, um, different world might have been that that right platform for that message. That that makes a lot of sense. I was actually, um, you know, thinking something along the same lines as you were because even in terms of inserting Jesse Jackson into the plot as Jesse Jackson himself um it would have it was a more natural or seamless fit I think to weave him into a storyline of a different world as as opposed to weaving him weaving Jesse Jackson into the storyline of the Huxtables in Brooklyn yeah and it probably was more true to life. I'm sure Jesse yep. Jackson was going around to different colleges making speeches. So yeah. that it made sense. And you know, and we'll we'll get to it when we get to it. But you know, at the end when he's making his speech, it's like it feels like it's it's kind of real. I don't know if they scripted it, but <laughs> it feels like he was he was actually addressing an audience. Listen, I got the feels. But before we get into that, <laughs> we will save that. Until after the break, this is a great time to take a break. And then when we come back, we will get into what happens now that the Reverend Jesse Jackson is on the campus of Hillman College. Hillman Class Reunion is committed to supporting institutions that center Black people and communities. We hope that as you return week after week to listen to our podcast, you will hear us use our voices in support of historically Black colleges and universities. And we encourage our classmates to learn about, advocate for, and actively support these institutions of higher education. The coronavirus pandemic has impacted every part of society, with Black lives, Black communities, and Black institutions being among the hardest hit. Therefore, all season long, we will highlight and donate to a variety of HBCUs, which have long been the foundation of Black excellence, Black intelligence, and Black innovation. Now more than ever, these institutions need our support. This week, we are highlighting and donating to Wilberforce University in Wilberforce, Ohio. Founded in 1856, Wilberforce University has the distinction of being the nation's oldest private historically black university owned and operated by African Americans. Go to wilberforce.edu, that's W-I-L-B-E-R-F-O-R-C-E dot E-D-U or hillmanclassreunion.com slash WordPress to learn more about Wilberforce University and ways you can support. Okay, and welcome back, classmates. Just to remind you where we are, Dwayne is running for student government president. He's having a bit of an issue, though, because he's policy focused and he has some really good policy ideas. But his opponent, Miss Theresa, has a very winning personality. At the same time, the Reverend Jesse Jackson is on campus to deliver a speech at one of the assemblies. So 
In this next scene, we see Ron and Dwayne in the pit, where Dwayne is telling Ron that Jesse Jackson is on campus at Colonel Taylor's house and is, and is speaking at the assembly tomorrow. But Ron is overwhelmed by the disappointment that LaToya won't be making the campus appearance. Oh, Ron. <laughs> Just priorities, son, priorities. Suddenly, everyone's attention is directed outside where Theresa and her friend strut to the patio and perform a rap and dance number promoting the candidate's party platform. Dwayne responds by highlighting that Theresa is dancing around the issues and he bemoans the fact that federal funding for education is cut every year. He then asserts that his student council will make sure that Hillman has a solid present and future. Theresa counters that a vote for her will guarantee a jamming, slamming, popping, hashtag lit homecoming. (laughs) (laughs) I guarantee. (laughs) All right. So uh, I know we've already talked about this a little bit before, Talisha, but um, In terms of your campaign experiences and uh, things that you went through, what were some of the things that you did to really get to know your constituency? Like, how did they come to trust Talisha? Well, part of it is, you know, having relationships before, like before you're running for a campaign. Um, And this is true, particularly um, in underserved minority communities. You know, I have some segments of my community that's, um, you know, people struggle financially and they're, they're living in affordable housing. And one of the things that burn people up more than anything is when they only see you during campaign season and they don't see you any other time. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, the fact that um, I had already been working on things in the community um, was helpful um, because they kind of knew my name from some of the other things that were happening um, in the neighborhood. Um, Another big thing was having lots of neighborhood meetings, which is people may not realize this about me. They never do, but I'm an introvert. I actually would like quarantine has been good for me. (laughs) I'm okay (laughs) being at home. Um, But you know, in order to build those relationships, you have to be out there and you do have to talk to people um, regularly. So we did things like um, I had bus stop drop-ins. So as parents were dropping their kids off at the bus stop, they could talk to me for a few minutes while the kids were playing around so I could get a better understanding of what their needs were. Um, We did... um, for the high schoolers in the city of Tacoma Park, we have um, 16-year-olds could vote. I did the same thing for them with bus stop drop-ins, but I kind of brought breakfast so they could get some there food. There you go. <laughs> when they, um, candy, granolas, you know, that kind of stuff. And reminding them and teaching them about, you know, not only their ability to vote um, in the city elections at the age of 16, but um, also being able to vote when they turn 18. Because for me, that was more important than anything. Um, And then definitely had people to host events for me, um, which I was very grateful for. But I think perhaps the most effective thing was door knocking. Group of folks, um, friends, family, 
thank you all who volunteered. I love you all. Went door to door with my flyers talking to people about me. What my wow. platform was, why I was running, um, directing them to the website. It was very, um, it was a lot more personable, like very, very connecting with an individual than I ever mm -hmm. anticipated prior to running. I thought it would be simply you post some stuff on some listservs, get a few, you know, press things out and that was it. But it isn't. It is, it is very much getting to know people and what their issues are individually and talking and learning about how to help them. Um, that is what you, how you get elected. I, I wish it was, I wish it was not as, I mean, I wish it wasn't as just like, oh, you just got to get to know people, but you really do. You have to get to know people. And we've seen um, in some, even some federal campaigns, how those, those politicians that, didn't get out to connect with different communities, did not get their vote. Mm -hmm. That is true. What would you say was the uh, most prevalent issue that your constituency asked you to address, to address, or what was their, what tended to be the number one concern? Taxes. <laughs> Age old concern. <laughs> Don't nobody like them. Don't nobody want to pay them. You know? When you say taxes, are you referring to like their property taxes? Property taxes. Okay. And just overall cost. I mean, the DC metropolitan area is just really expensive area to live in. It's just expensive. Um, and my ward, it was about taxes and the cost that people were paying to, you know, just to live in the community. Um, we also have um, an area that needs revitalization. Um, and so really talking to people who want some of our business districts to be improved upon and what that looks like. How does that revitalization um, turns into um, maintaining the culture of our community and not alienating people and, and you know, that kind of thing um, that could be problematic. So yeah, those were some of the big issues that were in our, um, I, I did have someone that ran against me. So um, dealing with both of those issues was pretty huge. Mm, interesting. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that insight. So again, you know, in this scene, we got the two candidates making their case. And again, Theresa, she definitely has the winning personality. Dwayne is coming off as a bit more preachy. And so one of the ways that Theresa sets herself apart from Dwayne is, you know, how she comes at the people. And this time she comes at the people with this dance and rap number. So can we talk about this number? <laughs> I saw a lot of high kicks. I saw a lot of high kicks. And, I, you know, I asked myself, number one, was I ever that thin? I don't think so. <laughs> and even when I was taking dance classes freshman year at Georgia State University, my leg never went that high. <laughs> Girl, before she said anything, she said, let me give you this kick. 
and this back bend whatever bent all the way back and then launched into that rap i said all right all right go girl (laughs) and and for those who are wondering let me just tell you what she actually what they said it was it was her and her friend what did Uh, they say girl tell the people these are the lyrics okay they said do you feel the beat do you like the heat it's a stone cold boogie sorry it's a cold stone boogie i can't be beat a vote for me will be your victory it's like banking all your money for security so ignore that same old tired refrain don't vote for Dwayne. he's a wallet drain ignore that same old tired refrain don't vote for Dwayne. he's a wallet drain again like talisha been emphasizing what do people care about taxes she said he is a wallet drain he's gonna cost you money and you know what given what we're talking about this just occurred to me uh and it, it is somewhat relevant to this episode and the time frame that we are in so you know jesse jackson well not jesse jackson lost but eventually uh or rather, at this time, George W. Bush, or I'm sorry, George H. Bush, had been elected president of the United States. And one of the promises he made was, read my lips, and I quote, no new taxes. Well, a few years later, when they ended up raising taxes, or the fact that taxes were raised during his administration, Uh, A lot of pundits have said that's basically the main reason why he lost to uh, Bill Clinton. Mm -hmm. Yep. And so George H. Bush only ended up being a one-term president and he could not live down that promise that he broke, which was no new taxes. So yes, people definitely care about their wallets. All right. So back in the dorm, we see an agitated Dwayne taking down his posters and ready to throw in the towel on his campaign. Poor Dwayne. Ron then informs him that he has created new posters, which depict Jesse Jackson's endorsement of Dwayne for student council president. And Ron has taken the liberty to plaster these posters all over campus in an effort to help Dwayne's struggling campaign. Now, Dwayne's response to his friend, I can understand. How would you all have handled that? You know, your friend is trying to help. Your friend is doing the best he can, he or she can, but they've missed the mark. How would you have responded? Or do you think Dwayne's response was sufficient? Do you think he overreacted? Do you think he should have rolled with it? What are your perceptions? So my thing, and again, I get it. This is a college a college election. And maybe this is just me being me, which is also somewhat type A. There should have never been any posters put out by your campaign that you did not see prior to them going out. <laughs> because the, the thing that's so crazy is, is that, you know, Dwayne would get blamed for whatever Ron put up, right? So, you know, I understand why there would be some anger towards Ron. Um, but Dwayne also needed to take some accountability of the fact that he was so caught up in his feelings. He was not paying attention to actually review what Ron was putting out in these streets. Um, I feel like Ron was doing it to help. 
He wasn't doing it to hurt him. He was doing it to help. But I agree, those ethical issues. But I also feel like Dwayne should have actually, they should have had a plan before Ron went out making posters and plastering them all over the place. <laughs> yeah. I got a feeling Ron, though, was was going rogue. <laughs> they might not even had a moment to to even come together and talk. And Ron was just like, I know what I'll do. And he just went for it. I'm sure also that was not cheap, especially in 1989. 1989 and in color, okay? In color. In color. Somehow he was able to Photoshop that and get it all out there. I mean, you know, kudos to Ron when he can put his mind to something. he He can really accomplish things. But unfortunately, this was not the thing to accomplish. And, you know, and we know how Dwayne Wayne regards Jesse Jackson because we saw it when he met him, um, you know, and, and finally realized that he was the Jesse Jackson. So I'm sure Dwayne's mind was just racing. Like I cannot disrespect this national treasure, this, you know, this black American treasure, um, you know, with my little student campaign, like this is, this is crazy. I can't believe Ron got me into some mess again. Mm-hmm. So quick question before we move on to the next segment. Have you ever been in a situation where you've had a friend do something to try to help you, but it just wasn't the help you needed? <laughs> like they meant well, but the maybe the help didn't work or the help put you in a bigger bind than what you were already in previously? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> You don't have to go into details. I'm not going to go into specifics, but I will say, yes, that has happened. Um, And, you know, of course, hindsight is 2020. At the time, you know, you're angry, you're in your feelings. um, And it definitely required lots of conversations after the fact. But now looking back, I often ask myself, what kind of friend do you want? Do you want one that's mm-hmm. going to actually try to do something to help you? Okay. Or someone okay. who's going to be on the phone listening to you talk about your issues and say, oh, girl, I'm so sorry to hear that. I'll talk to you later, girl. Bye. Like, right. <laughs> right. Which friend do you want? <laughs> that's a great point. That's, that's a an excellent point. point. Yeah. So which friend do you want, Portia? <laughs> oh, well, you know. It it does depend on the situation. Sometimes you do just want people to just hear you out. I, I have a friend that's really good at this. Um, you know, sometimes we'll get into our venting session. And then before I get too deep in, into it, she'll say, you know, what is it that you want? Do you want me to just listen or do you want me to do something? Mm. And then, you know, and I'll say, oh, you know, girl, I just need you to listen. And, and then she'll give me that emotional support. Um but yeah, I mean, you know, Talisha makes a strong point. Sometimes you need somebody to do things. And, and there have been times where I've I've wanted my friends to do something to help, to be active in, in helping me instead of saying, mm, girl, I know the feeling or girl, you know, <laughs> that sucks. All right, then I'll talk to you later. So, yeah, sometimes you need that active support and, and sometimes you may not know how to ask for it and it sure is nice when you have somebody who to just take the initiative and say I'm going to do something for this person yeah that makes sense I get it what about you Ely um 
I think it depends. Um, most of the time, no. I just need a person to listen. Um, sometimes my friends and my loved ones think that I'm saying something because I want them to spring into action. But just given my nature and my personality, most times I just need you to listen. I'm pretty good. I think I'm pretty good about articulating when I need the help mm-hmm. and, you know, asking like, I need, can you do something? Can you fix this? Can you help me fix this? Can you help me, you know, hash this out? But, but yeah, that uh, makes a lot of sense. So to Talisha's point, I probably would have been mad, mad, really mad at Ron because I have control issues. I'm like, <laughs> why did you do this without my permission? Like, yes. Like, uh-huh. 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 I'm like, I'm the captain now. Like, no, Ron. <laughs> like, <laughs> so, but I, I hadn't thought about it from that perspective. I'm glad Talisha brought it about because I'm sure he came from a very genuine, sincere place and was just trying to help. And also, I'm sure he probably knew that Dwayne may not have gone for it anyway. Right. So he's like, let me let me just go ahead and do this because Dwayne gonna be hemming and hawing. He's right. not, he's not gonna want to do it. I I'm, word on the streets in the quad is that he is about to lose. I'm trying to get my. <laughs> we ain't I'm got trying time. to help my boy to save face. We don't have time right. to play. We ain't right. got time for him to be pontificating, opining, whining, hemming and hawing about what we doing and why we doing it. But lest I uh, belabor this point too long, let's move into the next scene. In the following scene, we see Colonel Taylor talking to Reverend Jackson, and then enters Mr. Gaines in his good suit. <laughs> with a basket of food. After Mr. Gaines has his fan moment, Dwayne comes in to apologize for the unofficial campaign poster, which Reverend Jackson is not aware of, right? He's being proactive. So then Colonel Taylor asks for an explanation and Dwayne informs him that an overzealous supporter took the liberty of creating the poster but that he's made every effort possible to take the posters down. Reverend Jackson then asked Dwayne what was their campaign about. Dwayne then goes on to tell him that the students don't seem to care about the substantive issues that he's campaigning on. So he's dropping out. Reverend Jackson, however, lets Dwayne know that he can definitely identify with his sentiment and follows with inspiring words, encouraging Dwayne not to give up. So many points in this scene. So let's start with the conversation that Colonel Taylor and uh, Reverend Jackson are having about music. Colonel Taylor says, it's Stu Gardner. Portia, remind us who Stu Gardner is. Yeah, so Stu Gardner um, actually is a real person who was the longtime composer for The Cosby Show and A Different World. So when um, Reverend Jackson was was asking about the music, whose music this is, and he said Stu Gardner, it probably was actually Stu Gardner. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so shout out to him. Right. Or another thing that I noticed about this scene was Reverend Jackson's attire. Did you guys peep that or did you ladies peep that? Absolutely. I saw that uh, North Carolina A&T. Ooh-ooh. He was represented. Go Aggies, go Aggies. And, uh, you know, as a note, for those of you who may have forgotten, we did mention in 
the introduction of the cast that Reverend Jackson is a graduate of North Carolina A&T University, uh, whom I hear has the best, or they call it Jiho, the greatest homecoming ever. Have any of you had a chance to go to Jiho? No, unfortunately, I have not. Talisha, Uh yes, we did. Did we go? Did we go? Didn't you come? When I was in North Carolina, where did we go? Y'all went to the CIAAs. We went, no, yeah, you're I, right, because we went to Charlotte. Yeah. Yeah, I don't recall going to... I, I, that's something I would remember. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're right, you're right. <laughs> but yeah, so, you know, North Carolina a says... The Aggies say they have the greatest homecoming on earth, known as Jiho. I was supposed to go in 2020, but COVID... So I don't know, maybe this year, uh, who knows, but uh, anyway, I also appreciated in this scene how Reverend Jackson is able to incorporate some little, you know, self-deprecating, but humorous comments here. So I really appreciate the humor. So in one instance, when Reverend Jackson and Colonel Taylor are talking, Colonel Taylor asks Reverend Jackson, what will his speech to the campus be about? And so Reverend Jackson says, well, you know, I was thinking about giving my inaugural speech, you know, since I won't be doing it at the White House. Mm -hmm. So I I thought that was cool. You know, keep in mind, I think this episode aired in February, we said, right? Uh, In April. Uh Oh, I'm sorry. This This episode aired in April, but it probably was recorded around January, February. Right. And we know that the presidential inauguration is January 20th. Right. And now, can we talk about Mr. Gaines coming over there in a whole suit? I loved all every single minute of it. (laughs) I love the meatloaf. I love the fact that he made him take a bite of the meatloaf. I love the fact that he completely ignored the fact that Colonel Taylor said they had already eaten. I love the fact that he was determined to get his photo op. And I love the fact that he walked up out of there after he got what he wanted. I love every minute of it. He took over. He said, I ain't going to keep you. I just need you to eat this rainbow coalition meatloaf. With pork, chicken, and beef. Oh, yeah. I didn't catch that. Girl, and he said, this is made just for you. I almost want to try it. I ain't never heard of no three-meat meatloaf. (laughs) But the whole time, I was sitting there like, okay, Mr. Gaines, I ain't mad at you. I get it. You got to come in there and make sure he he eats your food, get this picture. But I also was like, where is Velma? Where is Velma? You took the time to make all this food and you ain't bring your wife. He was not going to bring Velma because Velma was going to take from his shine. He (laughs) needed the photo for himself. He needed that photo for himself. (laughs) Justice for Velma. Velma could have got her picture. You know Velma would have appreciated a picture with Jesse Jackson question do y'all think mr gaines told velma where he was going in that suit when he left no (laughs) no he did not he probably had that suit hanging up at the um at the uh, what is what's the name of the restaurant the pit the pit he probably had that suit 
back in the kitchen at the pit. As soon as he finished that meatloaf and packed it up, he jumped in that suit, hit his car, and had the conversation. He didn't even go home. <laughs> he didn't go home. I think he ain't let us see him in the suit. <laughs> Because we've seen plenty of episodes with her, and we know she would have asked, where was he going? Right. When he came home in the suit, where you been, Vernon? No, this this how it went. He made the Rainbow Coalition meatloaf in the in the kitchen in the pit. Okay. He had his suit up. He changed after work, and after the meatloaf was done, he came over to Colonel Taylor's house, and he told Velma, I'll meet you at the location. <laughs> and then, and then we're going to see jesse jackson give his his speech so i'll already be dressed you'll be dressed and we'll be fine that's how you got around that gotcha mm-hmm, gotcha mm-hmm. but poor velma yes we do want justice for velma so <laughs> she needs to be in the picture next time it's the game uh-huh. <laughs> all right so back at gilbert hall the ladies and letty are uber excited to hear reverend jackson's address and whitley is anxious about being late for the assembly and not having good seats. So shout out to Willie for trying to keep everybody on time because I like a good seat too. As Letty tries to quell the nervous energy, imploring the girls not to embarrass her or themselves in their fangirl moments, Colonel Taylor escorts Reverend Jackson into the dorm and introduces him to Letty. And not even Letty can withhold the fact that she is awestruck and enamored by the presence of the Reverend Jesse Jackson. So again, very quick scene, but I really appreciate all of the details and just the nuances of Black culture that are incorporated here. So for example, there is mention of a Bobby Brown concert and my prerogative. Did you all catch that? Mm-hmm. And he was probably the biggest thing at that time. Bobby Brown probably was the biggest thing at that time. And so, you know, just speaking of the whole fanboy, fangirl moment, even thinking about Mr. Gaines, etc. Have any of you ever had a real fangirl moment? And who who was it? Who gave you that moment where you were like, oh! Like for anybody, for anybody, anybody or like a political figure, anybody, anybody and or political, preferably political. If you got somebody political, use that one. If not, anybody or both. So I, I do have a political one. Okay. So I was leaving. I was going to grab some food for lunch one day. I was leaving the office. And as I was walking out of the building, I ran into Andrew Young. Oh, and I was uber excited. Okay. Cause my mom was always telling this story about how growing up in Atlanta, I was really little ran into Andrew young and he asked me if I wanted anything in the store, he would buy it. And I picked a banana and my mama was mad because she was like, you should have asked for a Pampers, but anyway, <laughs> so, <laughs> so when I saw him, as an adult, having come out of Georgia State Andrew Young School of Policy, like oh, wow. I was, I did not realize how much I was fangirling, and so I was like, oh, uh, you know, 
Mr. Young, I'm just so excited to run into you. And um, I just want to take a minute. Can I just shake your hand? I came out of Georgia State University um, and I'm just super excited. He's like, well, that's great. Uh, did you go to graduate school? Yes, sir. I have two master's degrees. You know, I, I'm doing well. He's like, that's great. Where's your PhD? I was like, uh. <laughs> Uh, I was like, uh, he was like, go back, get your PhD. I was like, Miss Young, school is expensive. I got a good government job. But no, I didn't say that. But it was, it was a very, um, it was a fangirl moment for me. And it did feel very full circle um, to, to meet him when I was a, a baby Aww. and then to meet him again as an adult um, was just, it was, I didn't realize how much I was fangirling. Wow. Um, but I did. That's amazing. That's a that, great story. Yeah, that's a great story. And you went to like the school named after him? Yeah. Like how incredible yep. is that? What about you, Portia? You got a political fangirl moment? I really can't think of any, but I'm going to give, um, a, you know, I, I had a fangirl moment by proxy, I guess, um, through my sister. Okay. So my sister is a social worker in DC and uh, she, this was during the Obama administration. She had to accompany um, one of her students to the Easter egg roll at the White House. And, you know, she was just doing the events and stuff. And she did not know that there was going to be an opportunity to meet the president, President Barack Obama. And so she pulled out her camera as he was going down the line she got a chance to shake his hand and say hi. Um, and so she Aww. recorded it and sent it to us. And I was just like, OMG, this is great. Because that's the closest I'll, I'll probably ever get to Barack Obama. I went to his inauguration, the first inauguration. And um, yeah, between that and my sister actually shaking his hand, that's that's it for me. <laughs> <laughs> that's my brush with, with uh, political celebrity i guess and and my fangirl moment I, other than that i can't really think of anything what about you ely yeah i have two that i have to share so the first one happened when i was living in upstate new york this was when um hillary clinton was a new york senator she was a senator from new york and um she had not officially announced it but there were mummerings that she was going to toss her hat in the ring for president and this would have been her first her first attempt or her first run at being president. And like, this was around like 06, 07. So it was the state fair, state fair, New York state fair in Syracuse is a really big deal. And so it was like opening day and um, Senator Clinton and president, then Senator Clinton and president Clinton would be making an appearance. So they've made an appearance at this event and they're going around shaking hands. And Somehow I got into the face of President Clinton. You know, he was going around shaking hands and someone's, you know, I'm introducing myself and he shakes my hand. I'm like, you know, my name is Laron, just student at Syracuse University. And you all, the way that man locked eyes with me and looked at me and said, oh, LaRonda, yeah, you work for Jubilee Home. So nice to meet you. I oh, felt wow. like President Clinton knew me. Like, I felt like he knew me, knew me. He really has his way. And when it was over, I was like, I get it. 
like I see why people love him. He just had a way with people. I cannot explain it, but the way he shook my hand, locked, you know, locked eye contact with me and said my name, I really felt like he knew me. It was, you know, it was nothing, you know, inappropriate because, you know, he got a little history, mm-hmm. but uh, it, it, it didn't feel that way. I just really felt like this man knew me and I felt like he was happy to meet me. Right. right. And he was, you know, he had shaken hundreds, hundreds of thousands of hands just in that one day, maybe. But he made LaRonda Ely feel like he was happy to meet me. And so, you know, that was one. And then my second one was um, the first time I met. Um, Maxine Waters. So, mm-hmm. and I had the uh, privilege and pleasure of doing a detail with the financial services committee, which she chairs. So, you know, my fangirl moments couldn't be too fangirl because I was in a professional setting. Wow. I need to get out there. Y'all meeting some, some, some real people. Come on, girl. <laughs> Come on. We waiting on you. I, I'm going to get there. I'm going to get there. <laughs> All right. So in the next scene, we see Colonel Taylor introducing the guest speaker, Reverend Jackson. And shortly after, we see the incomparable Reverend Jesse Jackson approach the lectern. Inspired by Duane, Reverend Jackson delivers an impassioned speech, invoking events and honoring remarkable figures from the civil rights movement to encourage students that they even as one person can make a difference. He iterates that pivotal change in America has occurred because of persons, not the courts, not Wall Street or the White House, but pivotal change has come by individuals who thought that they could make a difference. He reminds us of Rosa Parks, Dr. King, the Little Rock Nine, Mega Evers, he calls the names of Jimmy Lee Jackson, um, Cheney, Goodman, and Schroener. These were the, the, um, the three students that were murdered in Mississippi um, during the Freedom Summer period. He mentions Addie Mae Collins, Cynthia Wesley, Carol Robertson, and Carol Denise McNair. These were the four little girls who um, died in the Birmingham church bombing, right? So he's evoking all of these key figures and persons from the civil rights movement in his speech. Reverend Jackson also emphasizes the importance of voting and how impactful the youth vote is. Can I just say that during this speech, even though this was an old episode of A Different World that I have not seen in years, it felt or it is still so relevant. And I was really touched by it. Yeah. And, yeah. and really moved. What were you all's impressions? Um yeah, I mean, you know, it it just kind of speaks to what we were already talking about and and kind of um putting context around Jesse Jackson's appearance in the first place and how where he sits in um in history with regards to civ- the civil rights movement and and also just remembering again we're only 20 30 years removed from many of the things that he was talking about mm-hmm. um you know with the church bombing and with the freedom summer and and with the little rock 9 um and and so many of those people that are watching the show and even people that are in the audience were alive um during that time even if they were they're you know little babies 
So all of this stuff is still somewhat fresh um, in their minds and to uh, have somebody like him then be at the front of that room, um, imploring people to get involved in the political process and even you know seeing the, the fruits of, of black people's involvement in the political process where he can now ascend to being possibly the most important black political figure at that time is it's just tremendous and you know something that Talisha said earlier uh, when we talked about why it was uh, why the decision was made I'm, I'm sure it was a decision for um, Jesse Jackson to appear on a different world and not the Cosby show and just that emphasis on the youth vote um, you know that that's absolutely right the, the you know that's what he was focused in on during his speech is to motivate um, young voters. And, you know, just to also give a little bit more context to it. So, you know, again, he ran in 1984 and he ran in 1988. Both of those campaigns featured extensive voter registration effort, which in turn increased Black, Brown, and youth turn or young people turned out, not necessarily youth, um, but younger people who were eligible to vote. Um, and a lot of people credit um, Jesse Jackson's campaigns with changing the composition of the Democratic electorate. Mm -hmm. um, and I found this 1984 speech that he made. Um, it's known as the David and Goliath speech. And he talked, he kind of compared the margins of victory that Reagan won by, mm -hmm. compared that to the numbers of unregistered people you know, so he would say, you know, Reagan won in, in Pennsylvania by a margin of 100,000 votes. There's 200,000 black and brown voters who were unregistered. You know, so he kind of said, these are rocks. These, these are rocks just sitting there on the ground. And, you know, imagine if we pick up those rocks mm -hmm. and we actually use them, we can slay Goliath. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so it was it's just it, again, he's a preacher, too. Um, yeah. So, you know, all of this stuff is just working all together. Um, he's an amazing speaker. He's an amazing, um, what do you call it? Someone who can who can speak off the cuff as well, not just a, an amazing writer, but someone who can who can speak mm -hmm. um, contemporaneously um, and and to draw from from many different cultural touch points and from the Bible. And, you know, mm -hmm. it's it's just he's he's hitting on all the different things that can really make people believe that, you know, yes, we absolutely can do this. This is, this is not just a, a pipe dream. This is something that we can actually accomplish um, right. in our lifetimes. Yeah. Cause in watching it, um, you know, some time has passed and um, we don't hear Reverend Jackson's voice as much as we used to naturally because he's getting older, but in watching this, I was like, wow, he's such a prolific orator. Yeah. Like just that speech was again just so incredible, so inspiring, even for me in this moment that I'm living in now. And uh, just after having the conversation and learning more about Talisha's experience in campaign. And, um, you know, it goes back to what she remarked was her motivation. She saw something in her community that she wanted to change, that she wanted to address, and she just went out there and did it. 
you know, as a single person, as an individual. And eventually she was able to um, find others to coalesce around her movement. And from, you know, from that point, her platform has grown and will continue to grow. So, you know, with that in mind, Talisha, what were your thoughts about the Jesse Jackson speech in this scene? Yeah, I mean, the speech resonated with me on so many different levels from you know, awe of the historic nature, um, the fact of who he is um, was very um, telling. But also, like you, LaRonda, I felt like it was so relevant to me right now or to people right now. Mm-hmm. You know, we as a community are trying to tackle some really difficult issues. Um, police reform reimagining public safety at a local level mm-hmm. it's hard and it can be discouraging and you could feel like you're fighting this uphill battle <laughs> and it's not just policing you know you talk about affordable housing Girl. and trying to make social justice mm-hmm. and all of those things and you feel that as an individual you're fighting this uphill battle and it's resistance the entire way. And sometimes you might feel or, or, or get a little weary from the war. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, <laughs> right. um, and to hear him remind us mm-hmm. that even though you may feel like this is an uphill battle, don't feel like your work is in vain. Yes. It just takes one, right? It just takes one person. It takes one rock to be thrown. It takes one mountain to be moved that could cause this ripple effect of change. Mm-hmm. And so that for me was like, oh, it was it was like going to church. You know how you get a good word? Mm-hmm. You're like, Woo, that was a good word. Yeah. I'm tired. I need to eat and go to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> but, but that's what it was for me mm-hmm. because it, it was refilling that need and what you need to be a leader um, in in today's trying time. Right. Because sometimes it can be thankless. Mm-hmm. You're doing a lot of work. And sometimes it can be thankless. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot that you do that people don't see. Yeah. Um, and sometimes people don't recognize the incremental change. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and especially when you're talking about the youth, you know, people want climate change for us to reverse centuries of climate change overnight let's channel that passion that's great but just also let's celebrate the incremental changes that right you know um so th- i think that that was the thing that really resonated so much for me in his speech it, it kind of felt like he was speaking to Dwayne, like don't get discouraged yeah like, be encouraged because it just takes one person to move one little piece of the mountain right that then snowballs into something great right Yeah, so true. Another um, topic in his speech that resonated with me also was his emphasis on voting towards the end and um, just how important the young Black vote was then and how important it is now. And it also made me think about, and I'm always thinking about it, actually, these current efforts to suppress black votes Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. because our vote is so powerful. And so many times young people, especially they say, Oh, you know, my vote doesn't matter. My vote doesn't count. Yes, it did. Because if it didn't count, 
they wouldn't be in the places that they are, the specific places that they are trying to suppress votes. And Talisha, I'm sure, you know, this brings home for you, especially true and hard because you're from Georgia. Oh, yeah. And like there was an incredible, um, you know, Senate election there and runoff. And basically, y'all changed the title politics. Oh, yeah. In Georgia. Or what, not um, y'all. I know you don't live there anymore. Not but y'all. It's still I wish I was there. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, like, yeah. And you have Stacey Abrams. You know, it started with her a few years ago. And after she, uh, she had a, a very dynamic and awesome campaign for governor, which unfortunately um, did not go in her favor. And I've heard in her in interviews say, you know what? I had Shiva. And she was like, I saw the underlying issue, which was the suppression of black votes. And she was like, you know, I'm getting out here. Me and my girls, me and my people, we about to go out here and fix it. And she did. And, you know, it didn't happen for her with the gubernatorial election, but it made a difference it was with the Senate election, which basically changed the political landscape of the United States. And then shortly afterwards, to have your state legislature come behind them with these ridiculous voter suppression laws and rules, which at the end of the day, though it does it explicitly, it very implicitly, right, targets the black vote. So, so again, did that any of that occur to you or what are your thoughts on that? You know, that's something that I am always thinking about, um, primarily because voting is power and there's a number, and this is something I've, I've realized on a, on a local level, a vocal minority that vote can actually dictate the direction of a nation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And they're vocal, meaning they are constantly connected to the politicians to tell what they want, what, what the community needs. They may not even represent the entire community, but they're talking about what the community needs. They get out there and vote. They donate to campaigns. They, they, I mean, that is what they do. And they go out there and vote. And so what happens is policy gets created to cater to those who vote. We as a community, a Black community, often does, don't understand that because we don't vote and therefore we see policies that are geared towards communities other than ours. Mm-hmm. Not understanding, it's because we don't vote. If we vote, then they pay attention to us. They have to, because if they don't get our vote, then they don't get Mm reelected, right? Um, And I think that's a, in Georgia, the political landscape in Georgia is one that is, um, I I don't know how to to say it, but some, some of these families and people who have been in office in Georgia for a very long time, bought their way in or in because of their family and have been there for a very long time, Mm -hmm. very long time. And so what the presidential election and what just recently happened with the Senate election signaled to a lot of those folks that are up for re-election very soon next year, mm-hmm. what, the reason they were rushing to get this thing through is because it meant that they too could lose their seats. Yep. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's a lot of people who get power through our complacency. Uh-huh. Right. If Ooh, we're complacent. Right. (laughs) But it's the truth. There are a lot of people who are in power because of our complacency. We don't vote. We don't complain. We don't cause a ruckus. They get to continue to do what they want to do. And so that's that's something that's important to keep in mind. 
And so all of these voter suppression activities that are happening across the country is the current political powers attempt to maintain the status quo of complacency. And we just have to do the work, one, to make sure that we we fight back against what's happening. And two, make sure that we are in tune enough to understand the rules mm-hmm. to make sure that we can still vote. Yeah. You know? And and so I, I felt like um in 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 you know Jesse Jackson's speech it it was highlighting the fact that there are a lot of adversities that are constantly put in our way as a people. And but we have to move past we have to persevere, we have to push forward. Yeah. Because that's the only way that we're going to win in the end, right? So I I'm so grateful to people like Stacey Abrams and all of those activists in Georgia and in the South that are really fighting against these voter suppression laws um, because it is critical. I find it appalling that we as a nation, it took a pandemic for people to figure out how to vote by mail. Mm, mm -hmm. To add to that, it took people taking advantage of voting by mail and it making a difference for some elected officials to now want to restrict it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's it's so true. Yeah. But um, yeah, just again, a, a wonderful speech, still very relevant uh, and very applicable today, um, you know, for, for today, for the, the world we are living in today, especially in our country. Um, were there any other nuances or details or um, characteristics of this scene that stood out for you all? Um, you know, again, just the authenticity of Jesse Jackson's speech also made me feel like there was an authentic reaction from the audience. Um, you know, the characters that we saw um, sitting out there watching him speak, it, it seemed like I, I was even wondering if he wrote this himself. I would imagine that he did. Um, and so, yeah, it, it really made me feel like I was there and it reminded me of, of other, you know, kind of political rallies or speeches that I've, I've listened in on or I've, I've attended. Um, and it was just so inspirational and in seeing those people in the audience who are supposed to be student college students um, and, and professors and staff and, and, and community members. It was, it was, uh, just really reminiscent of, of other events that I've attended as a college student. And I, I also noticed the diversity in the audience. Um, you know, even though this is, this is Hillman and this is an HBCU, it wasn't just black people in that audience. And it kind of reminded me of that rainbow coalition that Jesse Jackson, um, had cultivated during his campaign, mm-hmm. um, you know, again, kind of changing that democratic electorate by really going out there and seeking out black and brown and uh, LGBT folks and women and young people and, you know, the people that that don't tend to be um, engaged in the political right. process. Right. Um, right. That seemed to be somewhat reflected in in the audience that was shown on TV. Mm hmm. Yeah, did you all notice um, just the the reactions on the dais when 
Colonel Taylor was introducing Jackson and, you know, he had that preacher look <laughs> with his legs folded and his arms and, you know, just looking at the other men or the other persons on the dais. You know how like preachers in the black church, oh, doc, you know, they had that, that little fake humble look. <laughs> Did you keep that? If you didn't, like, it's to me, it's so worth going back to look at. Like, just those little nuanced aspects of um, Black culture, especially Black church culture, I, I did notice that in this particular scene. And did you all see Velma? I did. I was so glad to see her in the audience. <laughs> Velma showed up. Velma finally appeared. And, you know, shout out to B.B. Drake, who played Velma. Um, we we actually saw her in episode 18. We met her then. Um, and it's interesting that she was here in this episode, considering she didn't have any lines. I would imagine if they would have brought her out all the way for, you know, this episode, um, her, her lines probably were cut. I just can't imagine they would have just brought her out just to be sitting there. <laughs> Um, right. We already solved that mystery. We solved that mystery. She was supposed to be helping to deliver the the meatloaf, but Mr. Gaines did not want her to come. <laughs> so they met up. Oh at yeah. The <laughs> Thank you for that reminder, Talisha. I'm just telling you, we solved that mystery. That mystery is solved. Yeah. Velma was well. At least Velma was able to get in. She got a seat. Yeah. She got a good seat. We, a good I'm sure. I'm sure she said, hey, "Amen." That's right. We just, you know, we couldn't hear it over the applause. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, listen, we we got enough amens. That's right from Mr. Gaines. You saw him standing <laughs> <Yeah>. up. <laughs> yeah, sure did. All right. So let's get into the final scene where we are back at the pit and we learn that Dwayne has lost the election. Aww. Though he is disappointed. He is not discouraged. He is proud of his efforts and authenticity of his campaign. And as an aside, the girls have figured out a birthday gift for Freddie. Remember that subplot? <laughs> Gotta give <laughs> Freddie some for her 18th birthday. So inspired by the Reverend Jesse Jackson, they procure a rap performance, which encourages students to register to vote. And they also slide in a way to give Freddie her voter registration card because she's turning 18. She can vote now. However, guess what? This is Freddie we talking about. This is like the activist at heart. She already completed her voter registration card that morning. Um, so let's talk about the birthday gift. The birthday gift comes in the form of the, or rather the birthday gift is delivered um, via the Jackson Action Rappers performance. Portia, so I already know you got the lyrics. What what did they say? Remind us what the people said in the rap. Okay, this is my best guess because there was a little part where I was like, I don't know what they said, but okay, <laughs> this is what they said. Happy 18th birthday. Happy birthday, Freddie Brooks. Our birthday present for you is more special than it looks. 18 candles on a cake. What a difference you can make. Know the issues. Make a choice. It's time to cast your ballot. Let them hear your voice. But you can't vote because it would be hard if you do not have a registration card. Cute, cute. Very cute. cute. Very cute. So they hand Freddie the registration card. And again, of course, Freddie's like, but I registered to vote this morning. 
Do you all remember when you first registered to vote? Was it an event or was it just you? I don't know. <laughs> I can't remember. I remember my first, um, the first time that I voted, which happened to be by mail. I was in college. Mm -hmm. um, but I don't remember exactly how I, um, you know, how I registered. I don't know if I just um, approached the, uh, I don't know if I contacted the Board of Elections or if I was at some voter registration drive. Gotcha. I think I, I registered to vote through a voter registration drive on campus. Mm -hmm. I think that's how I did it because I was a late driver. Okay. So, <laughs> so I think, I think it was, um, I think it was through a voter registration drive on campus is how I was registered. Oh, cool. <laughs> yeah. I remember just being really, not anxious, but excited and happy to turn 18 because I can vote. You know, growing up in Mississippi and having family members that participated in marches and, and voter rights efforts, uh, voting and the importance of voting was always drilled down in me. So like my parents would take me in the voting booth with them from as long as I can remember. They would let me pull the levers and they would always emphasize during election time how important it was to vote or it is to vote. I also happened to have my 12th grade civics teacher. Her name was Ms. Minor. Ms. Minor, on the first day of class, we filled out an index card and it had your birthday on it. So Ms. Minor kept tabs on everybody's birthday. So on your birthday, Ms. Minor said, happy birthday, LaRonda, whoever. And she gave you your voter registration paper and you filled it out and you gave it back to Ms. Minor so she could take it. Wow. So she can make sure that it got to the Board of Elections. So shout out to Ms. Betty Minor for her efforts in making sure that students are registered to vote. And again, she was old school. Ms. Minor had actually taught my mom. So she had been in the game a long time. But yeah. So that was how I got registered. Wow. With that said, again, the episode, a very good episode, in my opinion, of A Different World, uh, wrapped up. So what are fi your final thoughts or takeaways about this episode? I'll start with Portia and then Talisha, you can chime right in. Well, you know, again, yeah, this this was one of my favorite episodes um, thus far. And Again, it is such a big deal that Jesse Jackson was on this show at this particular time. Uh, you know, besides being famous, he was a celebrity, um, but he was also, you know, to put it quite bluntly, he was the most important Black man in the country at that time. Mm -hmm. Arguably one of the most important politicians, but certainly the most important uh, Black politician and, um, you know, his appearance on A Different World also solidified the position of A Different World in culture. You know, if you want to talk to the Black people, especially Black youth, this is where you need to go. And his message of not only being politically engaged, but to be a young person and to be politically engaged just really fit perfectly with, with um, what they were trying to do in this second season of A Different World. So I, I just really um, was taken by by him, not just showing up and making a cameo because there's, you know, there's a lot of famous people that can show up on shows and they're just like, hey, I'm here. All right. Bye. And and they're they have no real purpose except 
to be like, oh my gosh, you're a famous person. But they really took the time to weave in a real message that that was true to him. You know, they didn't make something up. It was it was very much a message that he was pushing um, in his actual life. So I really appreciated that. And then the other thing was I was thinking about what people might have been thinking when they watched it or who might have been affected when this episode aired in 1989. Um, you know, and we we already mentioned the parallels between Jesse Jackson, who came so close to um, winning the presidency and Barack Obama, who actually did um, about 20 years, 20 years later. Yeah, because mm -hmm. uh, Jesse Jackson ran in 88 and Barack Obama won in 2008. And just going back and doing the research, I found out that Barack Obama was a first year law student at Harvard when Jesse Jackson ran for president. And um, and when this episode aired and then the following year in 1990, he successfully ran for president of the Harvard Law Review, oh, becoming wow. the very first black person to do so. And with that, he made national news and then he ended up getting that book deal um, and mm -hmm. he wrote, I think, Dreams of My Father. And so that kind of he had already been involved as a community organizer before, but but this was one of the things that kind of put him on the map. And from there, he went on to become Illinois state senator in 1996, U.S. senator in 2004, and then president in 2008. So I just couldn't help but wonder if, you know, Barack Obama watched this episode when it first aired and wonder what he thought about Jesse Jackson at that time. Wow. You know, and not just him other political figures that you know that are in the game right now like a cory booker like kamala harris who who now is the first uh black woman to be vice president of the united states um stacy abrams and andrew gilliam gillam who uh ran for um governor of of georgia and florida respectively um a couple years ago you know these these people who are who are now um uh, national political figures and their relationship to jesse jackson and that legacy, the, the the foundation of sorts that he was able to lay um, and how other people came after him. You know, uh, Maxine Waters, I read, you mentioned Maxine Waters earlier. Mm -hmm. She was part of Jesse Jackson's campaign mm. um, when he ran in 88. And then she went on to, to run uh, as Congresswoman out in California. So, you know, I'm sure there's so many people who are, shall we say, direct descendants of, of Jesse Jackson, and then yeah. there's others who, who come after. Um, it's just very interesting to see Jesse Jackson positioned in this place in 1989, and then think about all these other Black political figures who followed. What about you, Talisha? Final thought? Yeah, my, um, one, I love the episode. I, um, and the thing, I guess my final thought is, you know, it's, it's, it was a timeless episode, mm -hmm. right? Although there were some, you know, some aspects of the, sh of the episode where some certain one-liners and things that kind of showed the times. Um, but the issue in the um, Jesse Jackson speech and, and all of the, 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 the underlining, um, um, issues that were being addressed and trying to be conveyed are still relevant today. Um, so I think that that was something that was very pertinent and just really enlightening about this particular episode 
Um, and that is, is still true today mm-hmm. um, to feel one, to acknowledge the power of the youth of the youth mm-hmm. in terms of pushing forward change, the power of the youth vote. Um, Portia, you mentioned a lot about, um, you know, how Barack might have built upon, you know, just Jackson and some of the things that was talked about during the speech. One of the things that Barack did was mobilize the youth. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, And so that was something that was very pertinent in this episode, helping people to understand the importance of every individual doing their part to move forward change in in a community um, and not being discouraged, you know, and that was something that was very relevant. Um, So again, I I love the episode. And um, I think that Um, quite frankly, it's something, it should be a part of everyone's like television. If you're going to go to, go to school and want to learn about black community, black culture and black voter mobilization, you need to watch this episode. It needs to be on, (laughs) on the syllabus, like write a paper on this because it was, it was a really deep episode and it covered a lot of issues that weren't just pertinent then, but are relevant today as well. And I agree with everything you all said. And so I won't be redundant and repeat it (laughs) in a slightly different way. Uh, So as we wrap up, we always like to just make a couple of observations or notes about how we think this episode might be different if done today. Um, So what are some of the things you think might be done different today? And I'll start with me. Um, I think we, you know, in the beginning, Dwayne was talking about uh, one of the points he made was that we didn't really discuss this. I meant to bring it up, but I'll bring it up now. One of the points he made was that federal funding for education gets cut annually. And unfortunately, that hasn't really changed much. So with that said, I think there may have been uh, another point inserted or incorporated around the student council debate regarding student loans and student debt. Mm-hmm. What about you, Portia? Um, let's see. Certainly there would have been um, social media incorporated into it. Mm-hmm. So it wouldn't have just been, you know, two girls showing up at the pit doing a rap. It would have <laughs> been a whole social media campaign, a whole hashtag, um, probably a couple of hashtags against Dwayne. <laughs> <laughs> to remind the people that he is going to cost you money if you vote for him. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, certainly there would have been um, a social media cam- component to the campaign. Talisha, anything you think may have been incorporated into this episode or what would have been different if done today? Everyone would have been wearing masks. <laughs> <laughs> That's true, very true. True. <laughs> true, true. Okay, and one more question related to that. So if done today... and the show wanted to convey similar themes, what political figure do you think would have been written into the script? Barack. I think Barack Obama would have been all through that script. Okay. I do. I think he, I think he would have been, I think he would have been in that. I think he would have been there. Yeah. Okay. Portia, what about you? I agree. I, you know, he holds a very similar um, position in, in pop culture and black pop culture. Yeah, you would have seen the same reaction from a Dwayne Wayne-like character if they came mm-hmm. face-to-face to Barack Obama, the way that yeah. Dwayne reacted to Jesse Jackson. But yeah. also, I do want to throw in Stacey Abrams as well. Stacey Abrams has, has been out here fighting a good fight, talking about this voter registration. You know, and Barack Obama in, in many ways is is an elder 
you know, but Stacey Abrams is, you know, she's out here on the, you know, on the street, so to speak. And um, either this past season or the season before, Blackish did an episode on voting and it was an animated episode and they had her on the show as an animated figure. Okay. Um, So I guess maybe that's the closest we'll get right now. (laughs) And last but not least, so we'll start with our guest. How would you rate this episode, Talisha, on a scale of one to five? I would give it a five. I love this episode. I thought it was a great episode. I mean, it didn't include as much, you know, of what we've grown to love a different world for, which is a lot of the, you know, student back and forth banter. Mm-hmm. But I love this episode. It had such a pertinent message. It it had lots of funny, funny one-liners. Um, and it's still relevant today. So I give it a five. Okay. And Portia? I agree. I'd have to give it a five. You know, we've been saying this whole time since we started the podcast that A Different World is the most important sitcom ever. And this episode was very important. It was super relevant. Um, You know, as as Talisha said, it it still remains relevant to this day. So you can and and, uh, you know, Talisha also made the point that if you want to learn about, um, you know, black folks and politics and and, you know, HBCUs and all that other stuff, watch this and write a paper. I think you're absolutely right. You can learn a lot by watching this particular episode. Um, So yeah, for all those reasons, this definitely deserves a five. Yes. And I will agree. It's definitely a five for me, for all the reasons that you all have stated. It's timeless. It was relevant then. It's relevant now. Um, The writers do a great job of incorporating the humor tying in the subplot of Freddie's 18th birthday oh yeah to the you know re- voter registration I thought was brilliant that was so the, smart the nuance you know little things we see from Mr. Gaines coming to bring the coalition meat rainbow coalition meatloaf in his suit to you know the body language of those persons sitting on the dais waiting for Reverend Jackson to get up in speech I just thought it was all excellent and uh, just a phenomenal episode so it's a five for me too so it's on the record (laughs) let the record show let the record show (laughs) well five five fives across the board oh so also before we wrap up one more thing when we have guests, Talisha, we like to find out from our guests which a different world character do they identify the most with. For me, it's Whitley. Who would it be for you, Talisha? And you, there could be um, overlap. You could be Whitley too. That's what you want. Is it for this episode, or is it for like just in general? For the show in general. For the series. You know what? I've always related to Kim. All right. Okay. That's who I relate to too. <laughs> I've always related to Kim. Now, just so you know, Talisha, I know it may have been a while since you've, you know, watched a lot of these episodes of A Different World and this didn't come forth here. But, you know, for you and Portia, it it makes sense because they say the smart ones, the quiet ones, them be the ones. (laughs) When the lights go off. And just, you know, just so you know, what we have relearned about Miss Kimberly Reese is that when the lights 
I know Kim was in the, she, you know, she had she had some good times in the dark. Are <laughs> <laughs> you worried about her? Nothing wrong with that. Okay. But yeah, it does surprise me, child. I'm smart ones, honey. Them be the ones. <laughs> but nonetheless, with that said, thank you so much to our guest host, Talisha Searcy. It was such a pleasure and just a privilege and an honor to chat and chop it up with you about one of the best episodes of the best sitcom ever. Thank you so much for your time and agreeing to host with us. Yay. Hand clap. Yay. The pleasure was all mine. I love this. This is an awesome, awesome, awesome podcast. So thank you. Thank you for having me. We can't wait to have you back. And thank you to our listeners for joining us as always. So signing off, I'm Dr. LaRonda Ely. I'm Dr. Portia Flowers. See y'all next time. Bye. I'm Dr. LaRonda Ely. And I'm Dr. Portia Flowers. Thank you for listening to this installment of Hillman Class Reunion Podcast. Hillman Class Reunion is produced, written, directed, and edited by LaRonda Ely and Portia Flowers. Original intro and outro music was produced by our friend and brother, Daquan Bowen. You can get more information about him at DaquanBowen.com. That's D-E-Y-Q-U-A-N-B-O-W-E-N-S.com. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Hillman Reunion, Instagram at Hillman Class Reunion, and Facebook at Hillman Class Reunion. And visit our website at hillmanclassreunion.wordpress.com. And hey, classmates, like, rate, and subscribe to Hillman Class Reunion on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We hope that you join us for our next episode of Hillman Class Reunion. Bye. Bye.